This is Dorel Olalia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 179. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest in needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place mr hollywood himself presents the before the millions podcast and now your host deray olalaye what is going on good people welcome back to a brand new installment of the before the millions podcast this is installment 179 and i'm your host deray olalaye and on today's episode we are featuring mr jefferson lilly Mr. Lilly is a mobile home park investor. And as you'll come to discover, there are two types of mobile home park investors. The type of investors who just invest in the mobile home park land and then homeowners, mobile home park owners, actually, they lease the land and they park their mobile home parks on top of the land for a fee. And then you have the type of mobile home park owner who not only owns the land, but also owns the mobile home parks and they rent out the mobile home parks to tenants rather than owners. So we're going to talk about this industry in depth and really get to the truth about the mobile home park niche because it's been one of those niches that you don't really want to talk about. One of those niches that just puts a bad taste in your mouth most of the time. You're just like, ugh, mobile home parks. I would never invest in that. But today's guest, Mr. Lilly, owns over 31 mobile home parks valued at over $71 million. So talk about passive income in a niche that was said to be forgotten. And what's crazier is that local governments are actively trying to shut down this niche on a day-to-day basis. And we're going to talk about that here on today's episode. So make sure you're tuned in. Make sure you're subscribed because this is actually a really powerful episode. Now, for those of you who are interested... We are set to begin our third annual 5K, $5,000 in 30 days challenge. Now, if you don't know what this is, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash 5K and I'll explain everything. But for those of you who have done this challenge before and you're looking to flip a few more contracts, you're looking to have myself in the community hold you accountable for the next 30 days. Well, it's that time again, beforethemillions.com forward slash 5K. And if you've never heard of this challenge and don't know how to flip a contract, wait till you visit that link and discover that I have a full-fledged course that I'm providing to you completely for free with an accountability group to help you flip your first or next contract in the next 30 days. That link one more time is beforethemillions.com forward slash 5K, and we're actually getting ready to get started right now, so make sure that you register. As a perfect pairing with our 
annual 5k challenge right now we're doing a giveaway if you're looking to move through this challenge further faster you're going to use the software that i use to find and bet deals and that's PropStream. and for a limited time if you submit a review of this podcast to your podcasting directory whatever that is itunes google play stitcher soundcloud all that good stuff and you take a screenshot of that review and send it to info at before the with the subject line giveaway, you will automatically be entered in our prop stream giveaway where you get not one month, not two months, not three months, but 12 months for free. And this is the most powerful tool in real estate today. And you'll get an entire year for free. Like seriously, I'm jealous. I spend hundreds on the software and you get to enjoy it in all its glory for the next entire year just by submitting a review, screenshotting your review, and sending your review to info at beforethemillions.com with the subject line giveaway. It doesn't get any better. Last but not least, winners are announced first week in April. So good luck and Godspeed. And now your feature presentation. I think it was probably my first entrepreneurial experience was when I was about 11. And I just, I grew up in Denver. It was the winter and I had a snow shovel and I knew how to use it because dad had made me shovel my own walks, his own walks, I guess, that driveway. So I went off some afternoon and just started knocking on doors. And I think I was out till past sunset. Apparently I found out after the fact, my mother was like, crying and worried that maybe I was, you know, dead in a snow drift somewhere. (laughs) But I came back with like $25 in ones. And it was a little mass of money, a little crumpled up pile on the coffee table in front of me. (laughs) I think I was making a dollar a week in allowance. So to have like $25 was six months worth of salary and cash in one place. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, that's one of my earliest uh, entrepreneurial experience. Uh, it was certainly nice to make money, but it was also just kind of, you know, a, a sense of accomplishment that I had done something and figured it out on my on my own. Um, so there's uh, a lot of what I'm doing now in real estate. I, I've never had six months worth of salary now in cash in, in, before me, uh, but, uh, but there's a lot of sort of similar feelings of like, I'm figuring it out on my own and, you know, it's uh, so it's still fun. I love that. Did you did you uh, enter the workforce? Did you go to college um, after high school? Kind of what was how, how did that unfold for you? Yeah, w- went off to college uh, and spent uh, most of my twenties uh, doing uh, basically financial analysis type work. Um, uh, I, I went to uh, Penn in Philly for college, then worked in uh, consulting uh, with a company called Bain and Company. Uh, worked in venture capital. Uh, and then worked uh, at uh, Viacom, the media and entertainment people in uh, both sort of a strategy and an operations role. I basically spent most of my 20s being the guy behind a spreadsheet. Uh, I then went back to Penn, got my uh, MBA at Wharton, and then spent most of my 30s in uh, sales, specifically high-tech sales with three different startup companies uh, out here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And then to sort of even out the stock options and and those ups and downs, I decided to invest in real estate as uh, a passive side investment and was thinking initially, hey, you know, I'll buy an apartment building, uh, obviously have some more stable income. I don't mind working. I figured, 
maybe I, you know, put a new roof on the apartment building, put in some new kitchens, make it better for tenants, bump the rents, make it better for me. Um, and then just in researching uh, multifamily, I then came across the niche within the broader apartment world, the niche, uh, the maybe 1% of all multifamily properties that are mobile home parks. And, uh, you know, I, I remember finding those on an MLS listing, you know, the first time after, you know, see 99 apartment buildings at an eight cap, this was 15 years ago. And, you know, one mobile home park at like a 10 or 12 cap. And I thought, that's absurd. I'm not buying a friggin' trailer park. Are you kidding? <laughs> I delete the search, do it again and again, and kept kept finding this quirky little niche of mobile home parks that seemed to pay more money, be better priced than apartment buildings. Anyway, so I sort of stumbled stumbled into mobile home parks, but having begun a journey to try and find passive income. So I love uh, it. And let, ended up leaving my day job after a little over a year or so. And uh, now just have been doing mobile mobile home parks uh, full time for uh, coming up on 14 years now. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like Jefferson, you got you over time, the older you got, the more riskier you got. I mean, you were you had a solid foundation at first at the consulting firm. And then you went to go try the startup world. And then you're like, hey, why not real estate? That That's why, uh, why not be trailer trash? Go buy mobile home parks. <laughs> The usual career progression, but uh, right, right, and, and, yeah, and, but it's all entrepreneurial, you know. Absolutely, and it's crazy that you know, as you sit before us today, I mean, you've raised over what thirty million dollars from two hundred different investors, and yeah. you know, this this so called yeah. small niche that doesn't make a whole lot of money, that's not sexy. I mean, you found a way to make it work for you. But before we get into all of that, I mean, take me yeah. back to, I mean, I mean, the very first one. How was there? Because there wasn't much education on it, I, I imagine back then. Um, what did that look like? How did you finally decide after deleting, deleting, deleting all the searches that you saw of mobile home parks? Cause that wasn't what you wanted. How did you finally decide? Okay, let me, let me finally look into this. Yeah. So I just saw the jet would seem to be generally higher returns. Uh, part of that is somewhat overstated based on returns from the mobile homes versus the land, the, uh, the, the wheel estate, as I call it versus the real estate. Uh, but it did just seem to be still a more profitable niche. So um, I started uh, buying every book and tape I could find. I went to a weekend long seminar to learn about it. Uh, and I put together an unofficial advisory board of about 10 guys uh, that, that all were park owners. And that was hugely helpful. I, I think no matter what kind of real estate, really no matter what kind of business you're thinking of getting into, to be able to talk to people one-on-one -on -one that have been there, that have done that. Is how were you, how were you able helpful. to do that? What, what, what value were you offering them? I mean, again, think about the, I'm thinking about the listeners who are like, man, like, I wish I can do that. But again, I'm, I'm pretty sure you, you, you weren't starting out with a whole lot. How did you, how did you manage to get, you know, all these brilliant minds in one room or on yeah. one, you know, in one conference? How did that work? Yeah. So uh, a, a number of the folks I found online, uh, and, and would approach them that way. Um, but I, I would also just start talking to people about what I wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, good things started to happen. As they say, if, you know, you're kind of thinking about it, you know, things will manifest themselves in, in that direction. So, you know, I just remember I was talking to like one guy at my church and said, hey, I'm thinking of buying a mobile home park. 
And he said, you know, my dad used to own a park and it was what sent our whole family to Europe every summer for a great vacation. You know, here's my dad's number, just call him. Um, so, uh, so that's how I came up with, with these 10 names, some online, some just from talking to people. Uh, my father also happened to have a business acquaintance who also had been in the business. So I got introduced there. Um, but folks I found were, were just surprisingly willing uh, and helpful uh, to provide advice um, for free. Uh, one of those 10 guys was also a consultant. And so when I got to the point of having a specific deal to discuss, uh, then I would go on the clock with him and would pay him uh, for his time as a consultant. Um, uh, but up, up until that point, just talking more conceptually about the business, his time was free. Uh, as was the the time of, of the other nine guys. So um, that's how it, it came about. It, again, it was very helpful to then say, here's a specific deal and run it by these guys. And they would say thumbs up or thumbs down, or maybe like, hey, Jefferson, the issue on this one is X. I don't know what the answer is, but you figure out this issue for this deal. And then you'll know, you know if it's the deal for you. Again, just being able to have that kind of conversation with with other owners was huge for me. What was your workflow like? Were you getting these properties under contract and then taking it to these ten individuals? Were you just researching and, and kind of like, hey, like I don't I haven't really made anything move yet, but can you check this out? Would you like how 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 was that going? Yeah, so uh, I would uh, typically talk to them before trying to get something under contract. So, uh, and again, a lot of those then just, just fell out. They'd say, that's not the deal for you. I wouldn't do it. Here's why. Um, and then a couple of the other deals that they did like I bid on and got outbid. Uh, and so, uh, so, you know, that was fine too. I didn't chase things up in price. Uh, but I then finally found my first deal of all places on eBay and mm. it seemed to check most of the boxes. And again, I, I ran it by. Uh, these folks and got their input and and uh, did get and, and bought that first park. And I still own it here now, uh, 14 years later. I don't know if you've mentioned the apartment space, but I remember you were doing some other analysis earlier. But when you think about the difference between maybe analyzing a deal for, you know, an apartment building versus analyzing a mobile home park, um, yeah. what, what, is the, what is there to consider? So uh, mobile home parks will generally work anywhere that apartments work. Uh, in our world, for instance, we're typically buying in towns where the average house price, just regular site built house is at least $100,000. So that weeds out places like Detroit, where the average house price is like 58,000 or something. We, we can't make money, frankly, very little real estate works in a really economically depressed area. Some of the suburbs of Detroit, you know, are perfectly fine. It would be perfectly fine owning in Pontiac or Gross Point or some of the other nicer suburbs. But anyway, so we're looking where uh, to buy where the average house price is over a hundred thousand. We're also typically looking to acquire where the average household income is forty thousand or higher. Again, a check that it's reasonably economically healthy. Uh, and then ideally, we're looking to buy within about a five mile radius of a super Walmart. Uh, Walmart tends to do their research well and wherever they're investing and building super Walmarts, you can be fairly 
certain that the economy is at least flat and and hopefully growing. Um, we don't need again. I live out here in Silicon Valley and in the San Francisco Bay Area where you know things are booming. We don't need booming. We just need stable uh, to make money. So again, being within five miles of a super Walmart uh, pretty much always checks that box. We still run test ads and do other things, you know, to, to check and make sure that the economy seems to be, be healthy, but the average house price, the household income and, and the super Walmart uh, get us 95% of the way there and very confident that, that, that we're looking at a deal that might work. I love that. Why do you think the mobile home park niche is so overlooked? Like it, it it's almost like the 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 stepsister of you know real estate yeah. almost. But but I, but why is that? It is uh, very small. Uh, I guesstimate that uh, you know there are approximately one hundred apartment buildings for every uh, one mobile home park. And there are probably, you know, 500 site-built houses for every mobile home park. So people just aren't talking about it because other people aren't talking about it. It seems everybody is investing in single-family houses doing fix and flip or buying apartment buildings, improving them. There are just so many more people doing those other things because the niches are 100x and 500x larger. Um, so I, I think that's principally it. Uh, mobile home parks do also still have uh, a bad reputation. People seem to think, you know, guns and drugs and prostitution whenever, you know, whenever anybody mentions mobile home parks, you know, maybe the bottom one or two percent of mobile home parks are that bad. Uh, but also the bottom one or two percent of apartment buildings and site built houses similarly are going to be that bad. But that reputation, for whatever reason, seems to really stick with mobile home parks. Um, and it's not the case for, you know, 98% of parks are, are just fine and, and aren't, aren't that difficult. Uh, but again, the bad reputation and just that it is such a, a teeny tiny niche, I, I think, is why people aren't generally talking about this niche. So let's let's debunk some of those myths, Jefferson. Let's talk about yeah. the upside of investing in mobile home parks. But first, I want to highlight maybe some differences because there's a difference in just investing in the actual park, the land, and then there's a difference yeah. in actually investing in the mobile home. So let's talk yes. about some of the upside and what that looks like for each of those uh, specific niches. So the way we look at this business is we really uh, view it as the parking lot business. Mm. Uh, what we want, at least in the long run, is to own the land, not the mobile homes. And we want to have people just paying us rent into the land. Uh, our mission, we're well, we're certainly a for-profit real estate partnership here at, at Park Avenue Partners. Uh, but we also have a social mission, which is to help folks live in safe communities and to expand the supply of affordable housing. So we will, for instance, buy and bring in brand new mobile homes, and we provide financing on those. Uh, our brand new mobile homes typically are under a thousand a month, uh, in, and that would be for a three-bedroom, two-bath, brand new house. Uh, you know, pretty good size, typically almost 1300 square feet. So in most of our markets, we're able to provide something, you know, housing of that quality 
for under a thousand bucks, again, generally in markets where apartments of that size would rent for 12, 1300. So, and again, folks are going to own that, that house. Uh, so they're building up equity uh, and, you know, brand new houses might be upwards of a 15 year mortgage, depending on what people can put down, they might be able to pay it off sooner. Uh, but we want people to have a light at the end of the tunnel. There's no 30 year indebtedness in our, in our business. We want people to own those houses and to maintain them. So that's a big difference in our business versus apartments, at least all those minor repairs like, hey, my window cracked or my toilet is leaking, all those kind of repairs, we expect our homeowners to take care of. Uh, just the same way, if you own your own house and it's financed you know, with, with a bank, you, you don't call a bank and say, hey, my toilet is leaking or I locked myself out. I need to change the locks. Those kinds of expenses are all on you. So that's an advantage for us being a landlord in that unlike in the apartment business, we generally don't maintain those leaky toilets and leaky roofs. Um, it's a win for the tenants because again, they're paying less money than if they were in a comparably sized apartment and they're going to own that house and have some equity in it. Um, so it's a great win-win for, for both of us, for the tenants and for us as a landlord to be selling the houses, retaining ownership of the land, but selling those houses and helping people get out of apartments and into homes that they're actually going to own. Yeah, I love that. Um, and this is not something that all mobile home park owners are doing, right? This is this is something that you guys have decided to do. You still have some of those mobile home park owners who are actually still owning the mobile homes and they're uh, renting them to, to tenants. You know, what, what we find is, is some other people want to run uh, what we colloquially call a horizontal apartment building. And yeah, some other owners do want to own all the homes and just uh, just rent them. Uh, and you can make more money doing that. It's also much more time intensive because then again, you're maintaining those proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs. You also tend to attract a somewhat rougher tenant base. Uh, renters in general are, are going to be rougher than people renting to own who have typically put down two, maybe even $5,000 to, to, as a down payment to, to get into renting to own. Um, so if you're willing to put up with rougher tenant base, more hours, more headache, you can probably make more money owning all those homes. We'd uh, frankly rather have fewer headaches, make a little less money, and help folks become homeowners. That's our it. business model, but indeed, it's not not for everybody. I love it. I read somewhere um, you cannot build any more mobile home parks in the U.S. Is that correct? Pretty much correct. Yeah, best guess is there were maybe ten built last year. So it's wow. it's very rare. It's very difficult. And there might easily have been 500 of them that got redeveloped into other higher and better use. So even if you're able to develop 10, maybe 20, the supply is actually shrinking because so many are getting redeveloped into other things. So that's another aspect that makes this a compelling niche is that the supply curve Unlike, say, in apartment buildings, the supply curve of mobile home parks is actually shrinking 
again, whereas apartment buildings, self-storage, senior housing, all other niches of real estate, at least when times are good, they're always building more of all those other niches of, of real estate. But that's not the case with mobile home parks. And that and that creates more demand because right, the, the, the ones who have to leave their mobile home parks and have to find new mobile home parks because of the redevelopment, they have to, you know, you're you're shrinking the the amount of um you know, mobile homes that parks that they have access to. So um, yeah. that's a really fun fact. I think that it's interesting that um, that's kind of a sustainable way to look at the business. Now, my, I'm curious to to see how many people who don't live in mobile homes make the transition to to or what type of person, uh, what type of situation are you are you coming across where somebody who lives in a you know regular house is wanting to transition to a mobile home? Because I just I, I can't imagine it because I'm not in the business, but I imagine that there are many types of people like that. Uh, we typically see people stepping up out of apartment buildings and, and wanting to come into a mobile home that they're going to own. We don't see a lot of people that are already in a site-built house that say, hey, I want to go into a mobile home. Um, the, the, there, there's a little bit of that dynamic in retirement communities. That would be principally and most uh, stereotypically in Florida, where you might have seniors that are looking to downsize, simplify their life. So some Florida parks that cater to seniors will have a dynamic of people actually selling site-built houses and moving into a mobile home. But um, that is, you know, maybe 5% of all the mobile home parks out there are those sorts of seniors uh, parks. Uh, so 95% of the market is what we just call uh, all ages or affordable mobile home parks, as opposed to lifestyle parks, also called seniors parks. So uh, again, uh, we don't at least so far own any uh, lifestyle seniors parks. Everything we own is just classic, all ages, affordable parks. Generally in the Midwest, uh, you know, we we bought and owned in places uh, like uh, Wichita, Kansas, uh, Sioux City, Iowa, Pocatello, Idaho, Roswell, New Mexico, uh, Dayton, Ohio. Uh, these are places where, again, we're providing housing, typically for families, some seniors, typically for families, but all mixed together. Um, and again, these are folks that uh, may not have the wherewithal to acquire a site-built house, at least not yet, uh, but but they'll bring down their cost of living, they'll move into a mobile home with us, they'll pay less money, and they'll build up equity in that. And some folks then, you That's know, leave, leave our communities sell their house, they can afford to buy a site-built house uh, or buy land and move their mobile home onto uh, their own land. Um, anyway, so that, that's the general dynamic. It's mostly folks on their way up coming out of apartment buildings that are with us collectively in, in the mobile home park business. Uh, and then they may eventually move on into a site-built house or or move their house onto their own land. Yeah. Um, talk to me about Talk to me about some of the things that are going on behind the scenes with, I guess, when it comes to tax revenue for the government and them, you know, rezoning some of the mobile home park land for higher and better use. Like, I mean, I just imagine like a hundred years down the line. I mean, it's nothing that we'll witness or our kids may be may witness. Hopefully they will. But 
I mean, what does this mean over the long term? And first, before you tell us or what you may think this means, you know, in the next 100, 200 years, which is really abstract, but I'm just curious. It's fun. Um, But before you tell us that, kind of break down to us maybe what do you mean by, you know, they're they're removing mobile home parks for higher and better tax use. And how is this putting more money, you know, in the government's pockets to do other things, right? What, what what's what's going on behind the scenes? How is how does all that work? Yeah. So uh you know, you have two dynamics there. So so you do have with a mobile home park you, you, a typical park would certainly have roads and water and sewer pipes down in the ground, maybe overhead electric, and then the homes are parked on the land. But the homes, again, are, are on piers uh, and have skirting around them, and they are mobile. The homes do not attach to the land, either on permanent foundations like brick or cement, uh, nor for tax purposes do they attach to the land? Mobile homes have a VIN number just the same way your car and my car does. And Title II mobile homes trades through the DMV. Mm. Uh, Mobile homes are chattel. They're personal property, not real property. So the implication there uh, for the wheel estate, as I call it, is that it can be relatively removed, relatively easily removed, trucked off, hauled off, and removed from the real estate. So you don't have significant demolition costs if you choose to turn your land into an apartment building or self-storage or sell it off to someone else. That I've seen this happen, that that, uh, a mobile home park uh, got developed into a super Walmart. Uh, There aren't significant uh, demolition costs uh, again, you, you have the homes hauled off and then you just d- do what you need to do with the land that would still be fairly raw. So it's relatively easy to redevelop mobile home parks into anything else. So that's some interesting beneficial uh, optionality uh, that, you know, if for some reason the mobile home park business doesn't work out, that land is still going to have hopefully fairly significant value to be easily redeveloped into something else. Uh, and, and, because, and because Jefferson, because it's because the mobile home is um, like you said, it's more so viewed like how you take title for a car. Um, yes. You're, 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 you're only taxed really on the land. Correct. Yes. So this is another reason then that uh, it is, effectively illegal to build more mobile home parks, one of a couple of reasons, Mm. which is that, yes, mobile home parks, by virtue of having relatively little in improvements, uh, are typically taxed at a lower rate. Uh, They'll also typically have a lot of families with kids in it. So that does mean a lot of kids, for instance, going to the local school. Um, but again, a municipality might not be getting that much in tax revenue uh, from the land. Maybe they get uh, a bit more from taxes on the mobile homes, but still collectively, all those taxes would be less than the taxes collected typically if that were an apartment building or a new single family housing subdivision or what have you. So it's in their best so- interest to... To possibly to try and get rid of the parks. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I've seen this, uh, 
play out many different ways. We we had uh, in uh, uh, my my first park was bought in uh, a little town called Slaughterville, Oklahoma. And a couple of years after I bought it, the government passed a master plan to help all of us. And among other changes was that any future development of any housing of any sort would have to be on two acres of land. Now, most mobile home parks have 10 homes per acre. So on two acres, you would have 20 homes and you would therefore be dividing the cost of two acres of land among 20 households that could still be affordable. Uh, what this town did with its ordinances by requiring two acres of land per house is to make it just dis- wow. it, it's just not economically affordable uh, to ever build another mobile home park. So that government, frankly, like a lot, this is not unique to the town of Slaughterville in Oklahoma, but a lot of governments will pass these sorts of of laws, which really do discriminate against the poor. Uh, But they can sort of, you know, with a wink and a nod say, oh, no, we don't discriminate against poor people. Poor people are welcome in our town. But then you say, well, why would I have to buy so much land? Why would you make it so expensive for me or anyone? to develop affordable housing. The same would be true for apartments, right? You, you, you'd have to buy two acres of land to do an apartment for one apartment, you know? So uh, wow. anyway, so what, what, what towns do is to make it not economic to ever develop any more affordable housing. Right. Um, they can't again, make it we, outright illegal. That again and again. They can't, right. yeah, they can't. So it's like fine, you know. You want you want to put up a ten-unit apartment building. You got to buy what, 20, 20 acres of land you know, <laughs> surrounding your your ten-unit uh, apartment building. Same economics for an, uh, for a mobile home park. It just gets crazy. But we see a lot of that nationwide. That local cities and counties have made it. They haven't necessarily passed a law that says it's illegal to build more mobile home parks. But with these sorts of zoning changes. Uh, again, they, they effectively make it illegal to build more mobile home parks. So again, for those of us in the business, we've got quite a protected niche. Mobile home parks are really the only naturally occurring affordable housing option. Obviously, a lot of governments, especially bigger cities, want to get into the housing business, want to put up projects, want to, to, to actually trap people in paying rent to the government. Um, and again, what what we offer is a chance for folks to at least own the home, not the land, but at least own the home, become a homeowner, uh, pay then at that point, maybe our average lot rent is probably around $350. That's dramatically better than, you know, lit, than, than paying, you know, over $1,000 to, to be in an apartment. Folks are homeowners with us. But still, because the tax base is low and because a lot of city and county governments look down on mobile home parks, again, it is now effectively illegal to build uh, any more uh, th- thanks to your, your local councilmen and women that are trying to help everybody with, with their laws. Wow. wow. So, so yeah. much gold in that. Jefferson, I have six different directions I want to take this conversation. But because I want to close the loop, because I really want to talk about the government and trapping people into into project houses. I've, I've I've never really had this conversation before, so it's interesting to hear that. But 
I want to close the loop on on the the you know 100 years or 200 years down the line. Like, I mean, just okay. the way that things are going with the zoning laws. Like, what what do you think of of the niche, and what do you like? Is it going to be is it going to be more desired or is it going to be extinct? Like, I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Like, just again, I, I know we don't have a crystal ball, but I think it'd be interesting to just kind of pander about it. Yeah. So I, I think an awful lot of the mobile home parks a hundred years from now will have been redeveloped into something else, um, <clears throat> you know, which is good for folks that own, but uh, own the parks, but probably not good for the residents the real issue isn't that, oh, the evil landlords are, you know, selling out the land. The issue is that the evil government is no longer allowing new mobile home parks to be built, you know, out at the outskirts of town. Uh, back in the 1950s, towns were smaller. You know, the outskirts of town were, were pretty close in to what's now downtown. So those parks have been redeveloped. And again, by not allowing by changing the laws and not allowing parks to continue to be developed, I think governments are generally doing quite a disservice to lower income Americans. So I, I predict far fewer mobile home parks uh, left in a uh, hundred years. I don't know what, what number. So <laughs> I love that, it. I that's love my, it. So, my fearless forecast. So Jefferson, back, back into your journey, I know that the first year you got into the business, you were doing it part-time. But the Correct. second year, Jefferson, you started living on site. Talk to me about that experience. Yep. <laughs> so uh, I had I bought that first park while I was at that third startup, and uh, ended up uh, doing both, as you've indicated, for a little over a year. Uh, I could see that that last startup was not doing real well, and my mobile home park was doing reasonably well, and I was frankly putting almost no time and no money into it. So I switched, uh, started doing my mobile home park business full time. Honestly, I thought I'd just, you know, do it for about a year or so, and then go back into high tech and try and, you know, find the next Google and become a billionaire. <laughs> That's what everybody wants to do in tech. <laughs> so anyway, not likely to ever be a billionaire in, in the mobile home park business, but I'm also not likely to work at yet another startup that doesn't work out. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, I started uh, bringing in mobile homes. As I mentioned, we, we buy new and sometimes later model used homes. We bring them in, fix them up, and then put them on rent-to-own agreements. So I was at that time, and I work differently now, but at that time, 14 years ago, I was my own, uh, we call it an asset manager, sort of my own general contractor. So I would go and live on site about one out of every three weeks uh, in a mobile home. I had an air mattress on site out at the property wow. in the well house uh, and a little alarm clock. And, you know, as long as there was an empty mobile home that I had brought in and that had electricity and running water uh, and I would bring my own toilet paper, I'd inflate that air mattress and I'd just sleep on the floor of that house for uh, for a week and oversee the crews that were renovating that house or other houses and doing painting or just setting the plumbing under the house, the electric, the skirting, what have you. Uh, and then I would fly back to San Francisco for about two weeks, you know, buy another house or two, manage the crews remotely, and again, then fly back out and be on site for another week. Um, so that's how I got started. Again, I've now hired people that do that sort of general contracting 
asset management work for me. But uh, back when I was a lot smaller, and that was my baby, my one and only part then, uh, yeah, I was living uh, on site one out of every three weeks uh, uh, overseeing those those crews. That was cumulatively for about a year, uh, uh, bringing in houses and, and overseeing those crews and, and the, the, the setup and sale uh, of a couple dozen houses. Oh, absolutely. When when um, I was uh, peruving around the internet, I saw that you um, you have the first mobile home park investing podcast. Is that correct? That's correct. We call it uh, 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 Mobile Home Park Investors. And uh, the website is simply mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. Uh, but yeah, we started that now probably about four years ago. Nobody else was doing any such thing. And uh, we've had uh, a range of, of guests on. Uh, we, we've also talked about just our own personal experiences, finding, managing, doing due diligence on and, and financing parks. Um, so yeah, that uh, mobilehomeparkinvestors.com is the website there for that. How we've that? actually had among us, we've had uh, Jim Clayton on who's uh, the gentleman that sold his mobile home business to Warren Buffett for about a billion six. Um, so he's probably our highest profile guest, but we've had a number of others on the show and, uh, that that's been a good ride with with our own, uh, mobile home park podcast. Yeah. That's awesome. It's also awesome to know that Warren Buffett is investing in mobile home parks as well. (laughs) He's more on on the manufacturing side of the homes than the parks. Uh, but, uh, Buffett, I think really, eschews controversy and conflict. So I'm sure he didn't want the headlines. He, he bought some mobile homes with the acquisition of Clayton Homes, but sold off the parks. Um, and so he's, he's retained the manufacturing capacity. I'm sure he didn't want the headlines like billionaire evicts little old lady. You know, you know, somewhere there would be a little old lady not paying her rent and you know that headline would eventually yeah, surface. Yeah. So anyway, so Buffett has sold off the mobile home parts, but retained the mobile home manufacturing capacity. And I think Clayton Homes now does a little over half of all the mobile homes in America. It's quite a big and successful company. I'm a very small shareholder in Berkshire Hathaway. So it's nice to have that collectively in, in, in my portfolio to to own a little bit of, of <laughs> I love that. I love that. Absolutely. When, when you think about even just going back to your podcast, when you think about the $30 million that you've been able to raise from the 200 different investors, yeah. how big or little of a part has that platform uh, played in that journey? Yeah, I'd say fairly sizable. It's difficult to predict, you know, to, to quantify it, but we certainly have a number of investors that say things like, Hey, I've heard your, your podcast and, you know, let me know about your next fund. I might want to invest a hundred thousand bucks or half a million bucks. Um, we've had a couple of people come in at over a million, which has been great. Um, but uh, yeah, our minimum has been about fifty thousand. Uh, the podcast has certainly helped establish credibility and, and familiarity, and uh, we've gotten a very little bit of deal flow out of it. But we occasionally do get deals from it. But again, mostly, as you've indicated, we, we mostly get uh, high net worth accredited investors that have heard the podcast and, and want to know more about our, our funds. 
Absolutely. So as before we get into the last and final round, Jefferson, just let's let's just get a little bit more into your personal life. And really, I mean, maybe not even this may be a little bit more work related, but walk me through a normal day of yours. And what does it look like? How, how are you juggling family, friends, uh, work, um, the podcast, right? The platforms. How are you juggling everything? Yeah, um, imperfectly, <laughs> but hopefully getting better. Uh, yeah. So like Mondays, uh, yesterday was, was Monday. I'm on the phone generally from about 9am through to about six. I'm talking with my partners, uh, talking with managers, talking with my, uh, asset, uh, manager. Uh, it's basically sort of a planning day for the week, checking in about how the previous week has gone and then planning for the rest of the week. Um, the other days, obviously Tuesday through Friday, sometimes I'm working Saturdays, uh, are typically some combination of doing planned work, some other calls, or just, you know, crunching numbers, looking at our performance, um, uh, but, but also unplanned work. There are inevitably emergencies that come up, you know, we get some random violation notice from, from a government about weeds being too high in one of our parks. Um, or we get an opportunity to like buy a park or at least a mobile home for a park at a good price. And we, you know, I kind of have to change direction and start talking about investing some capital. Um, anyway, so the rest of the week is kind of a mix of that. I work from home. So I do typically have breakfast, lunch, and then dinner with my family. Uh, which is nice. And the kids do stop, stop by the home office a couple times a day, wanting to show me their Lego creation. It's a dinosaur and a plane, daddy, but it's also a submarine. <laughs> a dino plane. Built, I love you know, it. <laughs> a dino plane submarine. Uh, anyway, so there, there are other interruptions like that throughout the week. Um, this afternoon, uh, I'm actually going to take the kids so my wife can do some other things, uh, probably going to take an hour, maybe an hour and a half and get the kids to the park. We've got a park very near us. So we're going to take a little time off from my official work day and there you go. just kind of go, go, go play with the kids. Um, so it's nice to have that flexibility and frankly, to be able to, to travel. We actually homeschool our kids. So, you know, we're going to go probably in a couple of weeks to be on site at one of our properties, one of our new acts. Still living on site, Jefferson? <laughs> well, this is kind I'm of a new playing. property that, that, that's also an RV park. So we're going to rent an RV and travel around a little bit of that's Texas awesome. and then pull in uh, to our park uh, down in Brownsville, Texas, right down near the, the border with Mexico and South Padre Island and just kind of be customers in our own uh, park and learn a little more about how the RV side of, of that park works. It's again, mixed mobile home and RV. Uh, and then, you know, we might drive off to San Antonio and see the Alamo and, you know, use it as a teaching uh, 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 opportunity for our kids and learn a little bit about Texas history and whatnot anyway. So it, it's nice to have the flexibility to be able to travel. We we'll do this maybe a couple times a year, but to just take everybody on the road and daddy can do some work on the road the kids can still get educated and still go to South Padre Island and get their toes in the water or see the Alamo <laughs> or what have you. Right. So working in, in real estate, uh, as many businesses, but when you work for yourself, it's nice to have those sorts of uh, flexibilities that, that working for the self, uh, working for yourself uh, often yields. 
I love that. I love that so much. And, um, you know, it's funny, I was at a wedding this weekend and we were talking about like, you know, catching up with some old friends I haven't seen in like five, 10 years. And we're talking about some college memories and some of those that took place in and near and around Brownsville. So I'm very familiar with Brownsville, oh, and, um, great, great. <laughs> uh, South Padre. So, uh, yeah, um, yep. I love that. Absolutely. Hey, next time you're down there, you need a place to stay. You call me, DeRay. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Now, Jefferson, tell me this. When when I mean, things are not always going well, right? When things hit the fan, when you feel overwhelmed or maybe you're, you're unfocused, you've lost focus temporarily. What do you do to get yourself back in alignment? And if it helps, what type of questions do you ask yourself? Yeah. Uh, so I have felt that at, at times. Um, and, you know, first off, it, it's uh, a big plus to be uh, to be in, 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 a, in a strong, loving marriage. And I'll just go to my wife and we'll talk through it and she'll ask me some questions. She'll give me a hug, you know, but having that kind of connection is, awesome. is a big help. I find that I can't just, you know, snap out of things like that in a minute. And I'll often just be overwhelmed for a day or even a week, but just, you know, getting several good nights sleep, <laughs> talking to my wife, uh, and then just kind of asking, okay, you know, what? Often, you know, it's, as they say, like eating an elephant, right? You don't do it all at once. You got to do it, you know, bite by bite and just trying to ask myself, what, what, what's the, what does success look like? What does it look like on the other side of this challenge? And then step by step, what little things do I need to do today and tomorrow or delegate to someone else on my team? Uh, what do we need to do the, the smaller component parts uh, to get through challenges. So uh, I, I delegate <laughs> to, to, to people. And, and then I also have, have family to, uh, to talk with and generally get through it. It's, it's never quite as quick as I would like, but um, so far it's, it's, it's all been working and I've gen- generally met those challenges. And I guess, as they say, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Makes so. you stronger. Oh, hopefully got a few muscles built up after 14 years. There you go. There you go. And I really, en- I really enjoy that question, guys. What does success or what would success look like after this challenge? Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite before the millions book? Probably snowball, which I is I think book. the best best written biography on Warren Buffett. It covers not only how he, how and why he invests, but it also covers his personal life and some of the trade-offs. And uh, my read is, frankly, he was a better investor than father or husband. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's interesting to read that book that is, again, a, a more complete look at, at, at somebody that most of us just think of as being a huge financial success he is, but again, it gets into some of the trade-offs and just things for all of us to think about. There are never enough hours in the day to be 100% family and 100% business and 100% on yourself and 100%, you know, so just think about kind of how 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 and what trade-offs you're willing to make, but Snowball's a very good book. Love it. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Uh we um, manage uh, our business now on, on uh, around kind of a, a body of thought called EOS, the Entrepreneur's Operating System. Uh, we've actually hired in an outside consultant to help us implement EOS. 
We manage our business. Uh, we manage the EOS aspects of our business through a, a website called 90.io. 90, like the number, .io. Uh, and so that helps us all keep track of our deliverables and measurables and whatnot. Uh, so there you go. There, there's a, a hack. I love that. Absolutely. And who um, who's famous for who, for popular or popularizing the EOS system? Was it Gino Wickman? Yes, that's Gino's body of, of thought. Yep. Absolutely. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? I would say that the flexibility to, again, be able to just take my kids to the park for a couple hours in the afternoon or take all of us on the road for a week, uh, you know, and still have my life work. I, I still work. We all still eat. <laughs> my, my wife still gets to homeschool the kids. The kids still have fun. Uh, but just having that kind of flexibility, because uh, I remember what it was like when I only had, you know, two weeks a year vacation mm -hmm. and I was working for the man. And, uh, you know, so it's just it, it, it's a big win now to have more more stability to do some working vacations to travel and and to just ha have a better work life balance. Yeah, I remember as well. I used to try to save all my vacation hours for the end of the year and then the end of the year came around and then I didn't use them all and then I'd be pissed because I wouldn't roll over to the next year. Oh, my goodness. Oh, no. <laughs> what were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? I would say a, a lot of it was around uh, learning. Again, I, I, I spent a lot of time talking with folks on that unofficial advisory board, reading books, listening to tapes, and, and just getting educated. Maybe I didn't even view that as that much of a sacri sacrifice, but it, it was going to be at that point, you know, some use of evenings and weekend time and, and things I would have uh, done, done other more, more personal things uh, with. Um, so yeah, just making that investment upfront to figure out as much as I could, you never know until you fully jump into a business, but just making that educational investment up, up front to learn as much as I could about this niche. And built a powerful mastermind before you probably even knew what it was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't think I learned that term until later. Awesome. I was just like, here's a bunch of guys that know more than me. <laughs> I love Guys it. that know more than me. And then I love it. Massive nice action. Mastermind. Massive incorrect action is always better than <laughs> learning everything and then thinking you're going to move. But I love that. Um, yeah. Who was essential to your growth before the millions and why? Uh, you know, that, that's a very... It's a very open-ended question. I mean, I could go back and say, you know, my my parents for encouraging me to pursue my own path and being loving and supportive. Uh, you know, that follows through with me to this day. Uh, you know, certainly the the guys uh, that I met on that advisory board, uh, several of which I'm still in touch with, continue to to kind of push me along. That was huge. Um, you know, also again, just reading books like that snowball book and just really seeing financial success modeled out, uh, albeit in somewhat different businesses. Uh, but but all of that has been inspirational and, and formative for me to, to get where I am now. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention of getting to the millions? because you made all the same mistakes or are still making the same mistakes that I did. <laughs> mm. I think what has held me back uh, is that I, I have a Superman complex. 
everything that comes up, I think, oh, I can do that myself. I'm not going to need to hire somebody to like answer my own phones. I'm not going to need to hire somebody to do accounting. I did my own accounting in QuickBooks for the first four months in this business. Uh, you know, I just keep thinking, oh, I can do that. Well, the answer is yes, I absolutely can. There's very little that's really rocket science about real estate, but to grow, you've got to hire somebody else to do your books, to market your properties on Facebook and Craigslist. You got to hire somebody else now to be overseeing the cruise. So you don't have to go and live on site at your property one out of every three weeks. So I have uh, been held back and, and recall this to a greater degree when I was getting started, but it's still an issue for me now. Uh, but but by being held back by not letting go of the rope, by not hiring other people part time to start, and as you grow more full time employees, but but I just haven't done enough to hire other people so I can be freed up then to do higher value work, generally raising money and and acquiring properties rather than actually running them. Uh, but I think that's where a lot of people got get stuck. I know it was true for me. You simply got to hire other people to do 99% of your work so you can focus on the 1% of stuff that's really high value and will really move the needle. Answering your own phones, doing your own books will not move the needle. <laughs> but buying deals and raising money, that will move the deal. So focus on the high value stuff and outsource everything else. Boom. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jefferson Lilly. Jefferson, if the People want to learn a little bit more about you. They want to say hi to you. They want to learn where they can find some of your information yep. and how to figure out how to get plugged into you guys. Where can they find some of this information? Come to our website, uh, which is parkavenuepartners.com. Uh, you'll see at the top of that page, there's actually a, a, a link to join our mailing list. Uh, we don't spam. I honestly email less than probably what I should, probably less than once a month. But that's how folks can keep uh, uh, abreast of our upcoming uh, funds and what deals we're buying. Uh, there's also a webinar link right there at, at the top, parkavenuepartners.com. And then down at the bottom of the page is an intake form. You can just put in your name and email if you've got a question or something specific for me. So all that is just at parkavenuepartners.com. And I mentioned earlier uh, our LinkedIn group and uh, our, our podcast all are at uh, that mobile home park investors.com website. Boom. I love it. Jefferson, thank you so much for the value that you provided to my listeners. More importantly, the value that you provide to the overall general real estate community. We appreciate what you do. And I'm going to have to go back and listen to this episode a few times. It was so much value. I appreciate it. And we'll talk to you very soon. Thank you, Dre. Bye-bye.